Let's jump into Nehemiah, shall we? Yeah, if you're new to Grace City, we started a summer series, a preaching series last week um, in the book of Nehemiah. It's arguably one of the more obscure uh, books in the Old Testament, um, but it's a fantastic book, and I feel it's extremely relevant for us for now. It's just, it's uncanny at how, how relevant this particular book is to, to our lives, I think. So we're going to jump into that. If you have a Bible, this would be a great time to grab it, open it, turn it on, and find the book of Nehemiah. By the way, if you're joining us online, so glad that you're with us this morning as well. Nehemiah chapter 2 is what we're going to get into this morning. We're actually only going to read eight verses, so the first half of chapter 2. You guys with me? Should be on the screen as well. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Father, would you help us as we consider your words to us? Lord, would you be our teacher, guide us? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want us to pause before we jump right into the text that we've just heard and consider something that's going to provide a kind of a lens for us to actually process this book through as we progress along. We're going to go through this entire book and obviously context is key. We always need to consider where we are in the story, what's been happening in history that's led up to this point, but there's some theological principles that we need to be keeping in mind as well, just beyond the obvious, beyond context. How are we to process these things that we're reading and going to be getting into as we continue through Jeremiah in a way that is is healthy, in a way that's actually meant to build us up as Christians living in Portland in the 21st century. So I want to sketch something out because I 
think the visual might be helpful, and you're very welcome to take a picture or jot this down in your notes as well. Um, we are considering a God-inspired journal, if you will, as you read the book of Nehemiah, it reads more like someone's personal journal. They have entries, dates, details, some prayers, etc., etc. And so we're looking at this journal but we're doing so uh, from about 2,500 years away. So we're way over here. You can see uh, sort of the light outlines of my sketch. I was here last night practicing my sketching. Can you see it on the board? Thank you, it's pretty good. This is us. Good enough. There we go. <laughs> it's got to be perfect. And we're considering this text that we're reading, that we're going to consider this morning, but from a long ways away. And there's a lot of there's different theological filters that we need to have in place in order to process this properly. And I want us to consider those lenses now. There's four of them. So we're looking from here. There we go. There's four lenses that we need to have in place as we continue along. The first lens is this, and this is the one that's closest to the text itself, and that is the lens of example. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, that these things that took place happened as an example for us and were written down for our instruction. There's things, there's stories, there's events, there's peoples that have been written down for our instruction in the Bible, like Nehemiah, that are actually there as examples for us. Um, examples of principles to apply, examples of things not to do. In fact, I would argue that the Old Testament is actually jam-packed full of examples of things that we probably shouldn't do. Warnings, if you will. But examples nonetheless. I think on a very base level, on a, some kind of superficial level even, um, there's examples of wisdom, examples of of, of lives lived out of people who trusted God. And we can look to, in fact, if you look at the book of Hebrews, for example, there's a long list of people that are sort of listed as examples of these. These are people who trusted God, not perfect people. In fact, most of the people listed, it's almost as if they've been contrasted with very flawed, fallible humans who happened to just trust in a very gracious, merciful, and awesome God. And they're sort of included as these are examples of normal, real people who had faith in God. That's one lens. The second one is similar, but quite significantly different. And that is the lens of shadow. It says in Colossians 2.17 that things that happened in the stories 
took place in ancient times should be thought of more as like shadows that point to something or someone else of greater substance. For example, um, the Sabbath festival or the kosher diet, certain things to do with the Mosaic covenant and the law that was meant to make God's people distinct from those around them, people who are worshiping other gods and idols and whatnot. And so there's certain things that were written down, certain laws that were to be obeyed, but the writer of Colossians says explicitly that these things were only ever shadows meant to point us to Christ, who himself is the substance of those things that they were pointing to. As one poet once said, as the sun rises, the shadows wane, for even heroes fall, but his love remains. So these things that we're reading about in Nehemiah, and this will actually be very, very important, particularly as we get towards the latter part, the latter half of Nehemiah, and we'll begin to look at the ways that he was reforming uh, Israel, and he was trying to get them back to uh, the law and different things that God had expected from his people. But if we don't realize, as we look through the lens of shadow and example, that those were only to point us towards someone else in whom the substance is found, we can make a big mistake thinking like, oh, now that we've read Nehemiah, it's obvious God wants us to build walls. No, that's actually not the point at all. They're an example, yes, but they're a particular kind of example. They're examples that meant to point us to someone else, and that is Christ. Which brings us to our third lens, and this is absolutely the most important lens, and that is Jesus himself. Nehemiah is not the hero of our story. Jesus is always the hero of the story, the grand story, the big story, the whole story. At the very end, it's Jesus who saves the day. He's our redeemer. He's our hero. He's the one that died for us to conquer sin and death and came back to life. Jesus is the hero. As great as Nehemiah is and the example that he could be, he is not the hero of the story. Jesus is the hero. And because of what God did for us, let me highlight this one real good. And because of what God did for us in Christ, we're living in a completely different sort of paradigm, a different world, if you will. We are not Old Testament Jews. We're not living under the covenant of the law. In fact, one of the most helpful ways to process the story of the Bible, as you consider the, the, the overarching narrative, is that as God is telling the story, there's certain covenants that he made with people. Very beginning, you see God making a covenant with the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. He, he makes a relationship with them. He makes promises to them. He forms a covenant with them. Theologians call it the Adamic covenant. He says that I've given you a responsibility to cultivate, to steward this good creation that I've made and entrusted to you. And if you'll do so, then I'll bless you and I'll multiply you. And eventually he makes another covenant with a man named Noah. Because Adam and Eve, they don't do a great job. In fact, they break the covenant. 
the very outset, and everything goes terribly wrong, and so God is true to his word, and he says there will be consequences now, and the curses ensue, and, and it, gets, it goes from bad to worse, and eventually God says we've got to start over. We've got to completely wipe the slate clean. We've got to cleanse the entire planet, so he floods the globe. But he picks a family, and he says, I'm going to start over with you, Noah. And he makes a promise to Noah. He says, I'm never, ever, ever going to flood the earth again. I will never use the earth to destroy the earth again, not until I'm all done, not till the end of the ages. And so that's a promise that was for us. It's a universal promise. The next covenant God makes is with a man named Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, which is actually part of the covenant that, that is continued on in Christ. After Abraham comes Moses. This was a very specific temporal covenant that God made with his people for a very specific time. But then along comes Jesus, and he forms a new covenant which we are a part of. If we forget that God has been working in this progressive manner, making these covenants with people at particular times and for particular reasons, if we forget who we are and what covenant that we're a part of, we'll go terribly wrong every time. Jesus is the primary lens through which we need to be considering these Old Testament passages. Otherwise, we'll go way, way off course. We'll forget who we are. We'll forget what God has done and what he's doing as we look forward. The fourth lens is this, and that is the lens of the church. We are not Israel. We're not trying to build a wall in order to preserve. Well, actually, we are trying to build several walls um, directly below me. <laughs> um, yeah, so perhaps there's an example there, a shadow. <clears throat> God bless the city of Portland. Just give us our permit. The church is in Israel. We are not the nation state, the geopolitical entity of Israel. Not then, not since 1948. Um, I'm not sure exactly what God wants to do with that particular nation state, and there's a whole lot of debate about it within the body of Christ. It's incredible how much controversy swirls around this little tiny piece of desert in the Middle East. It's pretty interesting stuff. It's quite important, actually. But what's important for us as we journey through Nehemiah is to simply know that the church is not Israel. You could say that we are a kind of spiritual Israel, but we are not the geopolitical nation state of Israel. We're not trying to rebuild that temple, although one might argue that this has something to do with Ezekiel's vision, this other temple being re-erected, part of the debate, part of the controversy, but we are not Israel. In fact, Although a big part of Nehemiah has to do with rebuilding this wall to protect this vulnerable city that God was doing something very unique in, in Christ, the church is meant to tear down walls. In Christ, the church is meant to be the multi-everything family of God, multi-cultural, multi-ethnic, multi 
you name it, gender, multi-age, uh, multi-whatever kind of person you are, whatever language you speak, whatever, whatever kind of color skin you have, God is tearing down walls to reconcile everyone and everything to himself that we might be the beautiful, multifaceted family of God. That's very important. That's the church. So we will reference back to these lenses as we go um, because this is going to make sure that we stay on track and we're reading Nehemiah as followers of Jesus and not somehow thinking that we've all become uh, ancient Jews. Okay. Some of you might be Jewish. That'd be kind of cool. Um, but we're Christians who've been saved by grace who are living under the new covenant that Jesus has secured by his blood. Some of you are like, man, that's way too many religious words. Okay, fair enough. Nehemiah, let's get back to the text. We're told that it's the month of Nisan, which means about three or four months would have passed since chapter one. Nehemiah receives the news and he's processing the pain of unmet expectations. 70 years since the second temple was rebuilt in Jerusalem. Abraham, or rather Nehemiah, would have thought that perhaps things were going well by now. They weren't. The city is just as... Um, Lost as ever. And so he's processing that pain. Now we're in the month of Nisan. I don't know what he's been doing for the last three or months, three or four months. It says he hasn't gone before King Artaxerxes for a while. Finally, someone gets a new bottle of wine and says, hey, give this to the king. Remember, Nehemiah is the cupbearer. So his responsibility is to make sure the wine hasn't been poisoned before he gives it to the king of Persia. Quite a job, huh? He goes before the king, and he's obviously distraught, so distraught that he can't hide it. The king sees that he's sad, and the king says, what's wrong? You're obviously not sick. You look healthy, which would have been enraging. What is your problem exactly? This must be sadness of the heart. Could you imagine how infuriating? What, 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 do, you, what do you have to complain about? What are you so upset about? You've got your health. You've got a job got a great job. Why are you sad? Why are you bummed out? And it says that Nehemiah became greatly afraid. See, in that culture, in that moment, that context, to show any emotion or um, to somehow show that you're unsatisfied or sad before the emperor could have been the death penalty. King Artaxerxes why, why would he care what this exile slave felt about the current world situation? He was afraid because if he had showed emotion, if he had shown any sign of being dissatisfied in the presence of the mighty emperor, the king could have just been like, get this guy out of here. I don't need this drama. You're gone. Next. So he was terrified. But the king shockingly asks Nehemiah the question. 
He says in verse 4, the king said to me, what are you requesting? Could you imagine standing before the most powerful ruler on the planet and you think, this could go one of two ways. I could either die or he might ask me, what do you want? What do you need? What would you ask for? It's a great question, huh? It's like one of these questions like, if you could have one superpower, what would it be? If you had one wish, what would it be? I mean, it's almost like that. Standing before the most powerful ruler on the planet. What ails you? What's upsetting you? Tell me, what are you requesting, Nehemiah? What would you ask for? More money? Perhaps a loved one back. King, can you do anything about the last 10 years of my life? Can you set me free from this addiction? Can you fix my marriage? What would you ask for if you stood before the most powerful being in the known world? What do you want? How you might respond to that question really has everything to do with the second half of verse 4, which says, then Nehemiah prayed to the God of heaven. This is Nehemiah's second prayer in his journal so far. I mentioned last week, there's 11 total in the book. This one might be my favorite. We have no idea what he prayed. Just that in that moment where it's like he's about to either die or get his wish granted, what does he do? He prays. What do you reckon he prayed? What could he have prayed in that moment? Was it one of those little under the breath prayers? God, help me. Don't let me screw this up. This could go really bad or this could all work out. Could have been one of those like, God, if you are there, if you are real, you better show up now. He prayed. Nehemiah prayed and then what he did next is absolutely shocking. What did he ask the king for? He said, king, live forever. Big ups to the king. Don't kill me. But here's what I need. You know about Jerusalem. You know what's been going on there. This is my hometown. This is significant to me. This, this is my identity. This is what I care about. This is where my fathers have been buried. I need to go back. I need to take care of business. I need some time off. Paid. I also need you to write me a letter because I might die on my way. I need complete anonymity, protection. And while you're at it, can you go ahead and write me a blank check made out to ASAP? I'm going to need a whole lot of wood, like resources, cash to build the city and the walls and the gates. And oh yeah, I'm, I'm going to need a house for myself because I'm going to be like maybe about 12 years 
That's how long Nehemiah ends up spending in Jerusalem. Over a decade. That's a bold ask. That is a bold ask. What did he pray? He went from being terrified he could lose his life in this moment to shooting up a prayer to then asking for like everything. Have you ever done that? I remember, um, I could tell, guys, I could tell you so many stories. Pastor Roy, that was a great story. I love the 12 grand story. I could tell you stories. Money is a funny one because it's quite quantifiable. You know, you could talk about, well, I had this healing where I was kind of like sad sometimes that went away. It's like, well, okay, that's slightly subjective. But when you're talking about dollars and cents, like that, that's a quantifiable result. So here's what happened to me one time. You guys want to hear my story? So I was in London, and um, I had been praying about going to seminary. I don't know how it came up, but I felt like the Lord had put it on my heart. I'd been working as a vocational missionary for like quite a few years at this point. Been in London for, I don't know, maybe like five, about five years at that point. And I felt like God was saying, hey, you should go to seminary. There was a really cool Anglican college in London that I had connected with some people, and it just seemed like a great opportunity. Um, I didn't have the money. We did not have the money. We didn't have the money for like most things. We had no business living in this city. But we were there, and I felt like God say, you need to, you need to go to seminary. This is going to be good for you. This is going to be good for the people that I'm calling you to serve. But I had no money. Literally, it was like the next day or something. This all happened in like very, very close time. I had a meeting with a gentleman who was a banker in London. And uh, we had been connected through a mutual friend. And uh, with the hope of maybe asking him to uh, partner with us financially. This is how most vocational missionaries uh, receive their income. It's usually through the gifts of like individual supporters. And um, so I thought, well, let me talk to this guy. Um, but it was our first meeting. So I wanted to be like, cool, you know, like, appropriate. Not be like, dude, give me the money, give me the money. Just like chill. And so I sit down with this guy. We're talking about this and that. Just trying to like build a friendship. And I share a little bit about my ministry. And I'm trying to be very low key. And then at the end of our little coffee meeting, I say, uh, how can I pray for you? And he's like, oh, I'm so glad you asked. I have a prayer request. Recently, uh, my father just passed away. And so I was like, okay, I'm very, very sorry. I'd love to pray for you. He's like, no, 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 no. Like, it's, it's okay. He was very old. And it's, it's sad, but it was not unexpected at all. I'm, I'm actually okay with that. But here's what I need prayer for. He left my wife and I a very, very substantial inheritance. And I'm really asking God for wisdom as to how to invest it. And immediately, I think, I'm like, I, I think I'm hearing from the Lord. Like, <laughs> I'm sensing something very strongly. That was like the immediate thought that popped in my mind. Like, I've got your answer. And then, of course, I was like, no, no, no. That would be totally inappropriate. And I was, honestly, I was like afraid that it would just be, like, obviously be very, be very offensive. So I pray for him, Lord, give him wisdom, direct him, give him vision, et cetera, et cetera. And then we parted ways and I walked off. I really did feel like the Lord was prompting me to like share my need with him. 
But I was like too, I, I, was, I was scared. I was scared, like, no, no, this will, this will be awkward, it'll feel disrespectful, like, like obviously. And so I resisted, and I walked off. I mustn't, I probably got about two blocks down the road, I'm like walking like this, and the Holy Spirit just stopped me. This doesn't happen to me often, but it was just like, wow, like I'm, this is weird. Like, I feel like God is just like arrested me. And I felt deeply convicted. Like God was saying, hey, like I've orchestrated this whole thing. I told you to study. I've connected with you, this guy. The money's there. And you're blowing it. You're totally blowing it. So like, what are you doing? And I felt deeply convicted. And so I stopped. And I got out my phone. I'm like, let me text him. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. I know this is really bold. But I just, I have to share this with you. And he immediately responded. And he said, Simon, thank you so much for sharing your need. Consider your degree paid for. Amazing, right? Now, I need to qualify the story by saying it doesn't always happen like that. Right? That's not the point. Sometimes you pray, you ask, and God is like, mm, timing's off, not, not now, not this person. But keep trusting me. The question in my mind isn't so much what did Nehemiah pray, it's who was he praying to? Something about spending time with this God of heaven. Jesus referred to him as our Father who is in heaven. Changes the way we do life. Changes the way we engage in impossible situations. Changes the way we see people. The way we process pain, disappointment. Something about this God who in the moment that Nehemiah prayed, in between being terrified to death, to asking these incredible big asks that led to all sorts of other amazing, redeeming things, God spoke to this man. And there was something about Nehemiah's relationship with God, this revelation, this, this relationship that he had with the God of heaven that empowered him to live and to act and to engage and ask King Artaxerxes for certain things and in a certain way. And here's the point I want to make this morning. Guys, when we begin to spend time with this God, when we begin to pray in this way, it completely transforms the way we, we face the challenges that we face in life. When we begin to pray, something about this God whom we're connecting with, who we're listening to, who we're being with empowers us to overcome fear. Faith begins to displace fear. And he doesn't stop being afraid. At least we're not told he did. He doesn't stop being afraid, but something else begins to transcend the fear. And he says, even if it costs me my life, I'm going to put it out there. I'm going to ask. And he asked. He asked big time. The dude asked not only to get time off, but for like a house for himself. I'm going to need you to just bankroll everything, if that's cool. 
I had a talk with my dad, and he basically said, yeah, you know, I'm going to need you to come in this weekend. Like, I talked to the real boss, if you get the reference. And he's no longer succumbing to the fear of this man, but he's remembering there's one other who I should actually fear. Jesus himself said in Matthew 10, he says, don't fear him who can destroy body. Fear only him who can destroy body and soul in hell. Think about faith and the fear in God. These are not mutually exclusive categories. It's an understanding that there is no man or woman on this planet. It doesn't matter what title they have, how much power they wield, that is above the authority of God in heaven. He has all authority on heaven and on earth. Fear is displaced. Something about this God, when you've been talking to this God in heaven, spending time with him, getting to know who he is, begin to hope again. Three to four months, Nehemiah was processing this pain, thinking about how everything had gone wrong again. If there's one thing you must know about the story of God's people, Israel, is that they get it wrong over and over and over again. They get it wrong so bad, they end up getting kicked out of their own land. The, the land, the, the promised land that God had promised his people, I've got a place for you, I've got a home for you, I'm going to take care of you, it's going to be wonderful, and I'm going to lead you there, just trust me. And they get it wrong over and over and over again. They know hurt. They know disillusionment. They've been let down more times than you could possibly remember. And yet in this moment, because this man had a conversation with his God, he began to hope again. He had the audacity to hope in the wake of hurt. There's something about this God. Guys, who do you pray to? When you talk to God, and we all do this, maybe you don't do it out loud, when we're hurting, we tend to start talking to God. God, are you there? Do you care? Can you hear me? Am I talking to myself? God, I hope you're real. When we spend time with this God who Nehemiah is talking to, the result should be hope despite pain. Now that, that could be a great comfort and quite a challenge as well. I'll be honest, I'm not always full of hope. I don't look at my life, I don't read the, 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 the latest tragedy in the news, I don't, and, and just feel like, oh, I feel so hopeful for the day. In fact, I often struggle to feel hopeful. And then I get with my Father who's in heaven. And I say, Heavenly Father, you're holy. Let your will be done in my life and in the world today. Let your kingdom come in Portland as it's always existed in heaven. Lord, would you provide for my needs today? 
Would you give me my daily bread? Heavenly Father, would you forgive me today? As I choose to forgive those who have hurt me so many times in the past. Heavenly Father, would you lead me away from temptation? Would you deliver me from evil? Amen. And hope begins to arise. I'm reminded that this God I'm talking to is the master of redemption. He specializes in making broke things new. He takes ash. He begins to piece it back together and makes beautiful, beautiful things. Beautiful things. Who are you talking to when you pray? What do you know of this God? It could be very challenging. It says in Romans chapter 8, God is for us, who can be against us? He would not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You might ask yourself, what makes, what's the difference, let me put it this way, what's the difference between Nehemiah's prayer and the Christian prayer of faith? It's a good question. I would, I, would, I would suggest that there's perhaps very little difference. Somehow, Nehemiah actually trusted that this God he was talking to was able to take the most dire, dead, broken situation and, like, make it new again. I would call that messianic faith or Abrahamic faith. And God said, yeah, I can work with that. You're crazy. I can work with that. You have the audacity to believe that I can resurrect this burnt-out old town called Jerusalem, then watch me go. I can work with that. I would say the, the only real difference is, in Christ, my confidence should be, like, supreme. Because I know that, in fact, God has proven to me, to us, that he does make dead things live again. But he did promise the Messiah. The Messiah did come. God came through. God fulfilled his promise to Abraham. He fulfilled his promise to Noah. He fulfilled his promise to Adam and to Eve. And he fulfilled his promise to us. And if he gave us his only son, why on earth would he not give us everything? That's, I think, the main difference is that because of what God has done for us in Jesus, we can be supremely confident that my hope's not just a wish, it's founded on something real, substantial. God doesn't hold back any good thing from his kids. And so when I find myself in that place, God, I've been hurt so many times. I don't know if I can bring myself to asking again, to trusting again. I've been rejected more times than I can remember. I've been lied to. I've been excluded. I've been let down. 
I have failed so many times and screwed up my life in so many ways. I don't know if I can bring myself to ask you again. But when you start talking to this God who didn't even withhold his son while we were still sinners, something happens. You realize, who is this God I'm talking to? And hope begins to arise. It compels one to ask for things that seem ridiculous. I'm going to need you to like give me 10 years off. I'm going to need you to pay for my house. I'm going to need you to cover my degree. I'm going to need you to basically help me rebuild this city that your kingdom burned down. Because I talked to my father in heaven and he says it's all good. Last point. Can we stand together, please? Nehemiah prayed, and here's something he didn't do. (laughs) Here's something he didn't do, which honestly I thought I might do. He was the cupbearer. He served the wine. He had to make sure the king didn't get poisoned. If I was Nehemiah, it would have at least crossed my mind, like, I'll get one of those, like, secret spy rings with, like, the secret compartment inside, and, like, I'll open it up, and when he's not looking, I'll be like, I'll stir it up, like, hey, drink up. Like, let's off the king. Let's, he's obviously the problem. He, He didn't do that. When you begin to talk to this God of heaven, faith displaces fear, Hope overcomes hurt, and your enemies become your allies. Your foes become your friends. Nehemiah didn't see King Artaxerxes as like the enemy. This guy's the problem. What we need to do is to attack this man. Something about this God, his heart isn't to kill people. It's to include lost sons and daughters, to welcome them home. Those who were once far off, those who were his enemies, he welcomes us home. He welcomes us home. In Christ, foes become bros. You're welcome. Lord, help us. Help us to be your sons and daughters who would go to you, who would talk to you a lot, who would get to know you as we pray. Lord, would you help us to, Lord, help us to get to know you because it's as we get closer to you that we, we get to know ourselves. We begin to see the world through your eyes. We begin to hope again. We begin to love like you love. Courage begins to, to rise up. And even when we're afraid, we begin to live audacious lives. Help us, Father. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.